every prototype has exploded so far and everyone is dead. Ever go on LinkedIn and see a list of people you should know and go, wait a minute, I don't recognize any of these people. Is something wrong with me? Am I getting Alzheimer's or is this the final stage of the psychedelics? Well, it turns out from 2014 through 2019, LinkedIn conducted a massive experiment to see whether it was close or distant connections that yielded the most job opportunities. Guess what? It was the more distant ones. And they give a bunch of great reasons why. Well, I'll give you my reason. Because those people don't know you well enough to know all of your horrible habits and screw-ups and all the times you pretended to work while playing not even the good Tetris, the one where the bricks don't even fall from the sky, where they're just sitting there and you move them from the side. It also got me thinking about what the hell is Facebook? Facebook is not a social network. Facebook is a zombie resurrection. That's right. Facebook is the walking dead. Facebook reanimates all of the relationships that died of natural causes. You weren't meant to see any of these people ever again. You weren't meant to see what your coworker looked like in a bikini. You weren't meant to see the kids of a person you once met at a party who you will never in a million years meet again. They're extras on the set of a movie that no one's filming. They are ghosts that occupy unnecessary processing power in your brain every time you open the app. And fewer and fewer people are opening the app. Facebook is dying. All relationships have a half-life. They start out as friendships. Then there's the work acquaintance where you get together for lunch once in a while. Then they degrade to Facebook friend, eventually LinkedIn connection, and then finally spammer who asks you for donations for a cause you've never heard of that they suddenly decided to get involved with. Of course, they don't want to give their money. They want to give your money. Everyone knows that your true friends are on Venmo. And everybody knows the only people that matter are right here, me and you, complete and total strangers. You here for my brilliant ideas and horrible overacting. It's completely transactional. We never have to pretend to care about each other. Isn't that the most beautiful thing in the world? I want to talk about a guy, not just any guy, nor the guy that I'm in love with. I'm not. This guy, David Zipper, I think he's in the New York State Legislature, he tweeted, New New York State legislation would allow New York City to install 50 cameras that automatically ticket cars operated in protected bike lanes. Violators would receive a $50 fine in the mail. Now, this legislation is not new to New York. In fact, all of Brooklyn has been completely wired up with traffic cameras. I drove through Brooklyn very recently and I had Waze activated and it flagged all of these camera locations everywhere I was going. You're now a prisoner of these camera systems. And my hypothesis is that 100% enforcement of Every tiny little infraction is going to feel a lot like oppression. Look, we're not perfect. Sometimes you slip a little bit over the speed limit and it's still safe because you're a good driver. A 90-year-old driving or someone driving under the influence at 30 miles an hour is more dangerous than the really good driver at 50 miles an hour. Speed limits aside, the idea of 
100% enforcement is wild to me. These cameras and this technology is unforgiving. There's no one to talk to unless you want to go to court and take off from work. Otherwise, you'll just end up paying 50 bucks because it's going to cost you more to go argue it in front of a judge. I remember in the 80s, there was a story that came out, a tourist, I think it was an American, spit gum on the streets of Singapore and was caught by the cops and caned. No, they didn't give him candy canes or inserted anywhere fun. No, they beat the person with a cane. I forgot exactly how many lashes, but it's not inconceivable right now for many people in San Francisco or New York to see that as a pretty good punishment for someone not wearing a mask. I don't think you'd need a lot of uh, arm twisting or caning to convince them. I think we're quickly slipping into a society where there's an entire contingent of people that loves 100% enforcement of everything. They want rules. They want government to tell you everything. They want to take all risk out of everything in life, including driving. I'm not for accidents, but I'm also for people being able to make decisions. That's how we learn. That's the only way we learn. If everything is beaten out of us, then we're just puppets. And cameras are just the beginning because soon it's going to be robots enforcing it. If you're doing something dangerous, you might have a drone fly over you and tase you in the neck and all of a sudden you're on the floor because they thought you were doing something illegal. And maybe you weren't, but these things are unforgiving. It's essentially self-checkout counters for civil liberties. And you know how often self-checkout counters don't work. How many times have you tried to slide something on the machine and then you need the person to come over? But now there's no person to come over. Now there's just a robot beating you, beating you over the head. That's the future we're signing up for. And we're not even signing up for it. We're just passively letting it happen to us where you just drive 31 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone and just a $50 ticket arrives in the mail. Everyone cool with that? I guess we are. People need the freedom to make judgment calls. They need the freedom to negotiate difficult situations. And yes, sometimes make mistakes. And I'm not saying don't try to eliminate deadly mistakes, but don't eliminate humanity while trying to perfect this world, this perfectly safe world that's impossible. People are not machines and we're starting to treat them like ones. The idea that we can perfect society through force is soulless, neo-fascist utopianism. This is like, oh, we've dreamed up a perfect society where no one ever dies, no one ever makes a mistake, no one ever runs a speed limit, no one ever gets hurt, no one ever has to make a decision. That is insanity. And I'm under no delusion. The people in San Francisco and New York are slowly turning both places into Singapore and Wuhan, where there are no exceptions allowed, where everyone's a hall monitor looking to get the other kids in trouble. And that escalates because you see what happens in Wuhan with their zero COVID policy. Zero COVID equals zero tolerance. And same thing with zero traffic exceptions. And Wuhan hasn't been oppressive at all. <laughs> They've been shoveling people into trucks just randomly on the streets for any kind of infraction. Oh, you got COVID? <laughs> you got yourself a free trip to a prison colony. 
And if you're not this kind of person, if you're not either willing to be the subject of these Orwellian uh, hall monitors or these cane beaters, you better get out. There's no place for you in places like New York unless you're willing to fight. You have to fight it. If you're not fighting it, you're just a lamb and just letting it happen. And the thing about New York is no one really cares. No one's invested. All the communities where people had families and and immigrants that clustered in different areas, they're all gone. Now everyone's a tourist. They'll show up for a few years. They'll rent. They'll do some work or they'll hang out with their friends and go party and drink. And then they'll go back in four or five years when they found a mate or they'll die on the island because they couldn't find one. Regardless, that's the society we're dealing with. Ultimately, they don't care. They're not vested in the place. And this is happening in London, too. London has more cameras per capita than any other place. It is 100% panopticon, which is you can see everything. This is 1984. The cameras and tickets are just phase one. Phase two is the enforcement part. That's going to be automated, too. There's not going to be cops to explain yourself to or even judges necessarily. This is going to be enforcement or else. And I don't know what the or else is, but I'm sure it's going to buzz your balls at some point. And you can't leave things in the hands of these deranged hall monitors. These are the people who had children sitting in the cold, in the snow, eating their lunch outside because of some crazy COVID restrictions that didn't exist anywhere else in the developed world. All of the Western countries kept their schools open and treated their kids like human beings. Here, they just threw them outside like dogs and let them sit there eating their their grava. I'm, I'm not even sure they had plates. They just had to lick it off the floor. That's the society we want. These are the people we want in charge. Those are the people cheering this on. And believe me, people are cheering it on. I looked at the comments underneath that tweet that this guy posted, the squirrel nut zipper guy. There's nothing but praise. Oh my God, thank God. Finally, we're all safe. We were all going to die in traffic accidents. Everyone was going to get run over. All our kids were going to be pancakes on the streets. But now, thank God for this. Everyone's going to be ticketed and that'll keep you in line. They just want to keep you in line. These are not your friends. These are not even good people. They just get off on screwing with people. It's like the people who join the board at your co-op. There's only two kinds of people. The first is one who gets off on making other people's lives miserable and enforcing rules and making sure they can't do anything that they want to do. And then the other kind of person uh, that joins is the person who needs to fight those maniacs. And now they have to waste their time because these psychos need to enforce their psychopathy on everyone else. And those people are taking over. And I found this sign uh, really funny. Uh, Welcome to Manchester's Gay Village. Look fabulous. You're on CCTV, which is closed circuit TV. I think they need some other slogans for this. Here are some that I've come up with. All's well that's or well. Now you have two things up your ass. XOXO Charles. And what happens in Manchester stays in Manchester and on the servers of our marketing partners. All right. These need some work. Our agency is still struggling with the slogans. Let's be honest. And while I don't know this for a fact, I know how government works and how these types of systems get implemented. I virtually guarantee you that the government of New York City paid nothing for the system. Zero. A vendor 
came to New York and said, hey, you know how much money you can make off these traffic cameras? How many people? They just did the math because all they had to do is observe a few intersections and figure out exactly to the dollar how much New York City can make. And they're making a percentage of the profit. This is a private sector milking of taxpayers. Beneath all of the Orwellian BS, this isn't really about government caring about your safety. This is a vendor being slick and smart and saying, hey, you guys pay nothing up front. We'll cover the cost of these cameras and all you have to do is give us 20% or 50% or 40% of whatever the take is. So it's in their interest to have as many infractions, as many people caught up in the system as possible. And what does that suspiciously sound like? It's exactly like privatized prison. We're in the process of turning our cities into private prisons. You know how we all decided, oh, that's a bad idea. Hey, we, we shouldn't be punishing every little infraction or someone who had a, a nonviolent use of or sale of pot. We all kind of came to that conclusion, the left, the right, the libertarians, whatever. And now, all of a sudden, we're totally cool turning the entire thing over to private companies to milk citizens off these tiny little infractions. That's the world we want? Being milked by some corporation uh, under the guise of safety? These are lies. But I will leave you with two quotes. One is from Jordan Peterson. He said this. If we had our act together ethically, it's possible that AI could become... Uh, a useful servant rather than a tyrannical master. You don't want to automate your tyrannical masters. And that's the danger. That's yeah. one of the dangers of AI. And the second is this really sweet video that under this Orwellian system could never happen. This is a 94 year old man going in front of a judge over a speeding ticket. You have to hear it. It will make you cry and hopefully get you to act and to wake up. Thank you. <clears throat> Good morning, sir. Good morning, Judge. Mr. Kowawa, you are charged with a school zone violation. Beg pardon? You are charged with a school zone violation. Right. Which means that you were exceeding the speed limit in a school zone. I don't drive that fast, Judge. I'm 96 years old, and I drive slowly, and I only drive when I have to. I was going to the blood work for my boy. He's handicapped. You were taking your son to the doctor's office? Yeah. I take him for blood work mm -hmm. every two weeks because he's got cancer. You are a good man. You are a good man. You, are, you, you really are what America is all about. Here you are in your 90s, and you're yeah. still taking care of your family. That, that's just a wonderful thing for you. Well, how old is your son? 63. Yeah. And you still, daddy's still taking care of him, right? Yeah. <laughs> I only drive when I have to. Yeah. You see that young man over there? That's my son. Now, he's looking at me saying, Dad, when you're in your 90s, you're going to be driving me around. <laughs> you're setting a bad example for my kid. No. You're, put, you're putting a lot of pressure on me. 
Listen, sir, I wish you all the best. I wish the best for your son, and I wish you good health, and your case is dismissed. Good luck to you, and God bless you. Thank you. I want to talk about something I'm calling the persuasion paradox and clue clustering. I know that sounds like a mouthful, but it's a really interesting concept that I recently realized doesn't only apply in business where I've been applying it, but also to journalism. What I've noticed over the last 10 years or so is journalists and people in media feel like it's their obligation to spoon feed us the correct moral conclusions. If you're going to be a good person, you're going to be into these causes. You're going to be into climate change. You're going to be into all these gender issues, all this stuff that's perceived to be correct by them. Some of these things may well be correct. Some may not. But the idea that you can spoon feed someone a conclusion is insanity to me. And I'm judging by my own experience. There have been so many times where I've worked with CEOs, all kinds of C-level executives, and maybe the worst thing you could do is bring them a prefabricated conclusion. Say, this is the answer. The answer is the least convincing thing you can hand somebody. The more certain you are in whatever it is you hand them, the more you've kind of pre-processed it and say, hey, this is it, the more resistance you're going to get. You're going to get tons of questions. You're going to be asked for tons of data to support your conclusion. And people have this natural resistance to being told what to do. So the persuasion paradox is the more you try to persuade someone to your answer, to your conclusion, the more resistance you get. And we're seeing that exact thing in society right now. Over time, I developed a technique that I call clue clustering, and it's exactly what it sounds like. You build your case with data, show people the information they need, and hope that the smart people in that room, and you have to treat them as smart. You have to give them the respect because they didn't get to where they are or be as successful as they are without having a certain level of intelligence, craftiness, creativity, whatever it is, you have to give them that respect. So if you give them the data, you have to trust that they will come to maybe not the same conclusion, but something similar. And the reason that's important is People need to have ownership. The only way they feel vested in anything they do is if it's also their idea. If someone delivers their idea and says, let's do this, you're exposing yourself if you're the person delivering it because if something goes wrong, you're the fall guy. And also people aren't going to be on board. You have to build it together. That will produce much less resistance than just giving a prefabricated answer. So this idea of clue clustering is very powerful, but it has its pitfalls. The first challenge is you absolutely have to be ethical about it. Maybe, yeah, you do cluster certain things in areas you think are important, but you can't misrepresent or leave out really important information that may be contrary, especially if there are huge risks involved. It's like, I want my company to build this new kind of tire. Well, I can't leave out that every prototype has exploded so far and everyone is dead who's been in the car. You can't leave that out even though you really want these tires manufactured and you should have a rationale for why those things aren't as 
important or as risky as they seem. You can't be perceived by people as misleading. Whether you're being manipulative or people perceive you as manipulative, it's the same thing. These are powerful people who will tank your career. And if you look at what's happening in journalism, they're coming in with these prefabricated answers. They're coming in with these narratives. It's very clear they're leaving out certain data or not reporting certain things or misrepresenting how they reported. And that's destroyed all the trust. So really, journalists have three choices. One is report the truth and take the risk that we may come to different conclusions than the ones they want us to come to. The second is continue giving us the answers, the correct opinion. That guarantees resistance and sometimes an unpleasant flavor of resistance because it guarantees it in corporate and will guarantee it here. And the third is some sort of gerrymandering, which is you clue cluster, but not giving the full story. And those omissions lead to mistrust. And some of the things I talked about in a previous episode, which is the creation of new institutions to replace ones that have lost trust. And maybe there's something inherent in these institutions where it devolves automatically, maybe because of size, maybe the nature of corporate, maybe the nature of influence. But until that happens, you will see competition in this theater of ideas. Personally, I take my chances with number one, give people the truth, and hopefully we stumble our way towards the right answers. But if we're going to misrepresent or deliver narratives to people, I think that leads to a much more corrosive outcome than one that comes out of the truth. Anyway, if people want to know more about clue clustering and how it works, let me know, tweet at me, email me. Maybe I'll do a follow-up episode. I want to talk about the housing market for a minute. I saw this chart that blew my mind. It showed the median age of home buyers from 1980 through 2019 or 2020. Before I tell you what that number is, I looked up what the median age of Americans was over that time period. So in 1980, the median age of an American was 30 years old. Today, 40 years later, it's 38 years old. Now, the median buyer of a home in 1980 was 31, but the median buyer of a home is now 47 years old. That is insane. That just shows you the decline in affordability over this period and all of the inequality that's been caused by horrible housing and economic policies. And they're intertwined. They start to cause each other. And just in the last year, let's say you had $2,500 a month to spend. Uh, that's your budget. In 2021, that payment would have bought you a $759,000 house. Today, because of the higher rates, that only buys you a $476,000 house. That also suggests that all of these houses have already been devalued by as much as 
they're not worth what they were before because the pool of buyers is so much smaller. People didn't just suddenly invent new cash or have new savings appear in their accounts. So people are sitting on homes or hopefully not on the home, but in the home uh, that are considerably less valuable than they were last year. And last year was an inflated, crazy year. They were never worth that much anyway. It was just a frenzy because people were moving around and escaping COVID or adjusting to work at home. And there's a lot of causes here. The biggest one is they're just not building enough inventory. Construction has been at a crawl over the last 40 years. So that shortage of inventory drives up prices. And you have NIMBYs. It stands for not in my backyard. People who move into a neighborhood and then they want to lock the gate behind them, uh, sometimes literally, and say, we don't want any changes to this pristine neighborhood and to our property values. And they are a powerful, powerful force because all the local politicians have to abide by what they say. It's very rare that the state or the federal government will override whatever local residents want. And now there's a ton of institutional investors like Blackstone and to some extent BlackRock. Everything that starts with black but is a financial institution is now coming in to buy a property. Now, not only are you competing with other uh, retail buyers, you're competing with infinite cash. These guys literally create money. They create money from uh, issuing loans or getting super cheap loans from the Fed. Maybe now it's a little more expensive, but they are flush with capital. So they don't have to finance a home. It's not like Blackstone is sitting there filling out a mortgage application. Gee, I hope I get approved. I hope they give me a good rate. They are the rate and they're buying in cash. They're sweeping in and they have an advantage over someone who has to fill out a bunch of forms to maybe get a decent rate that they can live with and do it in time to get the house. So now because of all this, rents are rising and millennials are looking at decades of rent instead of ownership because this stuff's not going to unwind anytime soon. There are many historical problems that happened, but the roots of this most recent crisis were in the Obama and Bush rescue from the Great Recession in 2008. So instead of rescuing the owners of homes, they kicked out the owners and sold all of these houses to financial institutions for pennies on the dollar. These were all foreclosed homes. They got them for next to nothing. They became huge landlords. It was a transfer of wealth from individuals to these institutions. Now, yeah, you could make the argument that some of these people lied or they could never have afforded these homes in the first place. They shouldn't have gotten the loans. That may be true. But these other financial firms, they were bankrupt. If you looked at their paperwork, they didn't exist. They were so far in the red. They should have gone out of business. So instead of letting them go out of business and letting healthy firms take over and maybe helping the home homeowners stay in their homes. We did the opposite. We rescued the financial institutions. That is insanity. And a lot of our broken policies and decisions stemmed from that. This system does not favor the individual. And just in general, the government gets a free pass for causing all kinds of inequality. I mentioned giving cash to banks. Also, under Clinton, by trying to cap executive pay, companies started going around it by giving options in equity. They spiked executive pay way higher, way faster, and created way more inequality than the pay did.
There was a really interesting episode of um, Planet Money on NPR that describes exactly what happened. You can look it up. This is not some right-wing talking point. And then killing Glass-Steagall, that also happened under Clinton. Clinton is an abomination. People give him a lot of credit because he happened to exist as president under all of these favorable conditions in the dot-com boom. But he undid so many important things. Glass-Steagall is what kept banks from betting on risky assets. And they undid that. And that's what caused the Great Recession a decade later, long after Clinton was gone and was somewhere on Epstein's Island allegedly having sex with young ladies. Let's put it that way. And the trillions of dollars we waste every year, so much misallocation, so many bad investments, so many programs that never die, so much inefficiency. We take in trillions and we can do so much more with it than what we're doing. So what are the solutions? The first is massive increases in inventory, not just to builders, but to the NIMBYs. I think we need to create a mechanism for NIMBYs to profit from new construction. It's the only way to tamp down their resistance. For each new building, maybe they get a certain percentage of equity or a piece of the rents or sales from these multifamily units or new houses that are built in their neighborhoods. I know that doesn't sound appealing, but on some level, you can't neutralize them any other way. And also we need more real neighborhoods. The way we've been building is idiotic. Europe does a much better job of building mixed use and multifamily housing. Uh, having a store and a house in the same neighborhood or schools and houses and stores, places that people could actually walk. It's human scale construction instead of car scale construction, which is sprawling and probably not good for society. I'm going to do a whole episode on that. Uh, but in the meantime, you should check out, there's a channel called Not Just Bikes on YouTube that does some great videos on that. It'll be a good primer for what I'm going to talk about in maybe a month or so. The third thing we need to do is limit institutional ownership. You can't have corporations with infinite cash competing with retail consumers. That includes foreign buyers using New York and other desirable places as banks to store their money. They'll buy an apartment that they never live in just so they can get money out of their countries, which are godforsaken messes. And also reduce the holding period. So if there is institutional ownership, at some point they have to convert it to con or resell it to retail consumers. The one that I need to still think through a little more is incentives to first-time buyers. There have been programs that do that, whether it's rates or a down payment. States have programs. The federal government has programs. It's not always effective because sometimes it could just drive up the prices because now there's more money available for people to buy and then the sellers raise the price. So it has to be done very carefully to not d distort the market, which could very easily happen. But the thing we can do very easily is get rid of tax deductions for vacation and luxury rentals, especially for big owners that are turning homes into rental property. If people don't own, they treat 
There's stuff like garbage. Have you ever gotten into a rental car that your friend has had for a week? It looks like a trash can on wheels. You treat it like garbage because, you know, you give it back after a while. And that's how people treat rental property. New York City, the reason it looks like it does is is no one's vested in the place. People vest in places that they buy that uh, they have families in and kids running around. So they want to fight for safety and cleanliness and good environment. The other thing is zoning restrictions. There are a lot of places where you have basement apartments where people aren't allowed to rent it out. That could open up another 30% capacity in a given neighborhood. All of this stuff needs to be studied. There could be adverse consequences. On the surface, these are the things I would be looking at if I were trying to solve this problem. And I'm not sure anybody is to be honest with you. I don't think anyone is really thinking that deeply about it. And if they are, they're economists writing papers that no one will ever read. I'm not naive. Government moves slow and NIMBYs are a really powerful obstructionist force. And construction takes time. Even if we did everything right and a construction boom happened, that takes time to get inventory to a level where prices start to come down. And limiting institutional buyers isn't that easy either. They start using shell companies or proxy buyers where they give someone cash and they pretend to be an individual buyer and they're not. There are attempts to start limiting that. Newark just passed a law to limit institutional buyers. We'll see how that goes. And Australia has been doing this for years now. They've had all of this Chinese money pour in, all these oligarchs. Same as in London, where the Russian oligarchs have been playing. They buy up entire neighborhoods. The neighborhoods are dead. No one lives in them. But the apartments are basically banks storing value. They want to get out of their awful countries that could confiscate their wealth at any moment. And if anyone asked, advice I would give millennials today is not only can't you afford a home, but you can't afford to wait. There are so many countries that are dying off. Europe, they are aging like crazy. They need workers. They need people to come and have families there and and live there. And they have much more affordable housing. So Explore. I'm not saying it's going to be right for everybody, but travel, talk to people, go backpacking through these countries. It's not expensive. You can find deals off season, live in hostels and work to support yourself as you travel. Maybe you'll find a place in South America. Maybe you'll find a place in Europe. You can't just wait. These institutional changes will take too long. If you're planning to have kids, you'll be shooting dust by the time you're ready to have them if you wait. So go be fruitful somewhere else. I'm cautiously optimistic because now enough smart people are talking about this and hopefully it builds some momentum. But again, that last layer of resistance of NIMBYs is going to be very hard. I don't think the federal government is prepared to go in by force. It has to be done with finances and not force. For now, as always, the best solution is to be rich, have rich parents who could pay your down payment or have a great job. And since you can only control and maybe not even fully control just one of those, I sincerely wish you luck and I trust and believe that you can do it. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with others. Review it on iTunes. Really helps with visibility. And sign up on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash McFuture to support the show. I'm Steve Factor, and I'll see you next week on the McFuture. McFuture.